Hello and welcome to another episode of Age is for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. Each episode brings you content on the human side of research, health, well-being, and community. The Age is for Human is sponsored by the Legacy Project of the Office of HIV AIDS Network Coordination Hack. My name is Pedro Icochea and I will be your host today. A recent article published in the Journal of AIDS reported that in the United States, 9.2% of trans people are living with HIV compared to 0.5% in the general population. This diagnosis increases further in Black and Latinx trans people. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that trans people are one of the populations that are most impacted by the HIV epidemic and that barriers to seek health care by trans people include stigma, health care discrimination, lack of trans-specific information, and concerns about drug interactions with gender-affirming hormones. As Jessica Xavier puts it, for the longest time, transgender persons have been the orphans of the HIV epidemic. This episode of the Age is for Human will be devoted to the health of transgender people. To talk about this, we have invited a selected group of professionals and activists with a long-standing trajectory in advocacy, human rights, public health, and research. Our guests for this topic include Jessica Xavier, long-standing activist advocate, former HRSA program officer and researcher. Maria Roman Taylorson, Chief Executive Officer of Translatina Coalition. Rona Siskin, Health Specialist of the Division of AIDS of the National Institutes of Health. Tonya Putid, Investigator of the HIV Prevention Trials Network, and Dr. Jordan Lake, Investigator of the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. On episode four, we will have a conversation with Maria and Jessica to talk about the historical challenges and health needs of transgender peoples. On episode five, we will talk about current research and future research priorities in the health of transgender peoples. Let's start with a brief introduction from both our guests in this episode, Maria and Jessica. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation that is so critical and important. My name is Maria Roman. I am a Latina transgender woman, originally from Puerto Rico. I live currently in Los Angeles, California. I'm the Vice President and Chief Operations Officer for the Trans Latina Coalition. And I'm really grateful to one, be able to, you know, discuss the status of health for trans people conversation that needs to continue to happen in the landscape of HIV. So I'm glad to be here. I've been doing HIV work for over 25 years. The Trans Latino Coalition is a national organization with different sites across the United States. The focus of our organization is really to advocate for the specific needs of Latina trans people in the United States and to implement policies and things to really make sure that the status of our community changes. The beautiful thing about our organization is that all the leadership, including the president, the vice president, the board, all the staff and the folks who make the actual decisions in the creation of both the programming, the execution of programming, and the delivery of services is run by trans people. Jessica? Hi, Pedro, and thank you for having me. 
I'm Jessica Xavier. I'm a trans woman elder, having worked in and around the HIV epidemic since 1984 and in trans health since 1998. After I experienced difficulties in accessing trans health services when I came out in 1991, I ended up focusing a lot of my career examining the challenges experienced by trans and now non-binary people in accessing primary care, trans health care, and HIV primary care. Maria and Jessica, what could you say have been the historical challenges in the health of transgender peoples? I understand firsthand the challenges that trans people still continue to face. I was homeless. I had to engage in sex work. There's all these variables that systematically prevent us from being involved in the process, like discrimination in the workplace. So a lot of those issues, those social determinants of health, lack of ability to be able to get an apartment. There's simple things that people take that are part of their day-to-day -day life, like going to work, going to the grocery, to apply for a job, that for trans people become this fight or flight stages, you know, we're in survival mode, because even those experiences for us can be one, very traumatic. I think that there is a little more access to services now. But if you look today at the health of trans people, it's all linked to HIV, right? And we know that trans people are more than just HIV. We have an array of needs that we have from mental health, workforce development, um, food insecurities, ongoing poverty. So those issues put us in a state of having really bad poor health outcomes. Jessica? Well, stigma, stigma, and did I mention stigma? The social stigma of transgenderism has been traditionally one of the strongest in Western culture. When I came out 30 years ago, I made the decision to be completely open about being a transsexual woman. And so to survive that stigma, I had to become a student of it. Stigmas can obliterate all other aspects of a person's identity and personal achievement. I found the social stigmas very useful for various oppressive purposes on an economic, religious, and social level. So on a personal level though, stigma and social stigmas are used in what I call the false empowerment of scapegoating others. The devastating effects of transgender stigma have been studied and measured with outcomes such as violence, discrimination, harassment, poverty, suicidality, and the denial of health care. When trans health services, psychotherapy, and hormonal therapy became available in the 1950s and 1960s, we transsexuals were taught by our psychotherapists after we transitioned to not associate with each other, to conceal our identities, and to never tell anyone of our natal sex origins. Until the 1990s, that made organizing together to advocate for our needs impossible. Could you say that there is a politics of transgender people's health? I think there is, because you have the same people that for 25 years are at the table, right? They're all playing with the same chips. 
when a proposal comes out for HIV, the limited HIV resources that are there specifically targeting trans women, we continue to see the same issue that is trans women and MSM. Something that the community has been advocating for, I could say now decades, to please put out RFAs or RFPs that are specifically for trans people. We continue to see the same issues. Also, the status of trans people in the HIV field is still bothersome. That trans people that have worked for decades or years in these nonprofits across the nation are still at entry level health educators getting that 3% increase in salary. It doesn't lend itself for people to get broader education. People are not giving opportunities to be part of that middle management and make be at the key place where decisions are made when you're going to create these interventions. So all those politics play into how we continue to leverage resources, create programming. And you see this at national conferences. There's a lot of trans people that are the key people across the country, but they're not the ones making the decisions within their organizations about how programming will be created. Until we start shifting that decision-making power and the CDC and the people that are holding the purse start taking our feedback into account, it's hard for us and we're all pushing. And that, that's why you see trans-led organizations taking that leadership front role stage of also applying for those funds. But the infrastructure of some of these organizations are just beginning. So there's a lot of politics to, to say the least that are in play in all this. And what do you think, Jessica? Well, there really is no single unifying politics of trans health. Trans feminism, which I helped to first articulate in the 1990s, was mostly rejected by the trans population as an organizing principle. But in my formulation, trans feminism posits access to trans health care as parallel to access to the reproductive choice for cisgender women. Because in both cases, we're talking about agency, autonomy, and the right to control our own bodies. There's been, so in, in its place of that, there's been a politics-free advocacy for the informed consent model for access to trans health, which has encountered some blowback recently with regard to trans teens and children having access to hormones and puberty blockers without psychological evaluation. HIV is almost exclusively a concern for trans women of color. Although some recent data suggests that there are increasing numbers of trans men of color living with HIV as well. Non-binary people continue to be mostly unrecognized in public health surveillance and data from the current survey I'm doing in Virginia suggests that they encounter access to healthcare issues similar to trans people. In contrast, the original organizations founded by white trans people mostly focused on discrimination and redocumentation of identity issues. The principal provider organization, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, is mostly the professional home of fee-for-service providers who seem to avoid taking a role in advocacy for their patients and clients. The organizations that are founded by trans people of color, they're very small, usually. 
they have to work with other aid service organizations and community-based organizations in their urban centers to get contracts to do outreach work, prevention work, education work, linkage work. And so they're underfunded, drastically underfunded, and it's hard. What would you say are the priorities in the health of transgender people? I think that as trans people, many of us have been saying for many years that even people who have been living with HIV have had to go to multiple clinics, multiple places to be able to access gender affirming care. I think we need to do more research when it comes to gender affirming care as a link to other services. Because the truth is that for many trans people, until they're completely in a place where they feel complete with self, it's hard for them to start thinking about some of these healthcare options. If I'm in my beginning of my transition, my priority is transitioning, being in a place where society will validate myself, who I am, how I'm presenting. Perhaps HIV is the last thing in my list of things that are a priority for me. However, if I can go to a clinic where I can be treated in a holistic way, given all the things and access to all the things that, that validate my whole self, HIV and other sort of health priorities will be moved up in my list. Trans people need full comprehensive health care versus just the ongoing treatment as we are people that are at risk of HIV, which has been the messaging for so many years. We need mental health. We need holistic healing. We need therapy. We worried about diabetes. We need to be worried about all these other things that are related to the whole person versus HIV. Jessica? Well, there are certainly a lot of healthcare needs out there right now. Violence has finally been recognized as a public health issue, and organizing around it is literally about the survival of trans women of color. Overcoming stigma, which can result in the funding of trans organizations and trans programs and gay-run community-based organizations, that's important. The continuous training of trans health service providers so that they, they can treat trans people competently, comprehensively, respectfully, and with dignity so that they don't get misgendered, misnamed, automatically assumed if you're non-binary that you're trans and you're looking for surgery or the full transition route. There's a lot of work there. And also, of course, HIV and SDI programs to improve not just HIV and SDI prevention and care, but also health literacy amongst trans people. There's a crying need for that. And for God's sakes, we should pay our trans health care workers a living wage. There's so many of these gals who are working for a minimum wage as outreach workers, and they're doing the really hard work, the frontline work of bringing trans women who are struggling with HIV, violence, discrimination, substance use, mental health issues into care and keeping them there. And you really want to pay the, those women who bring them into care $15 or $7 an hour? What? That's just ridiculous. The HIV Prevention Trials Network, HPTN, currently has a study in the field to evaluate the interaction between gender-affirming therapy and the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention. On the other hand, the AIDS Clinical Trials Group is conducting a clinical study to assess the interactions of feminizing hormones with antiretroviral therapy for the treatment of HIV. 
Could you say that gender-affirming therapy is a research priority for transgender people? I have been invited to different bodies that have been looking at studies that are already ongoing. I don't think that I've necessarily been invited to be at the table as the studies are being designed and the measurement tools are being created. There's not necessarily a lot of trans people that are in research or are in academia. There's a very few people. But I think it is critical that community, whether it's the focus groups, whether it's advisory councils, that are able to participate and give feedback as these are developed. I think a lot of times we're invited, even by pharmaceutical companies that are currently doing research, after the research has already had half of the participants in across all the states, and we can't even give any appropriate feedback, they're just presenting the information to us. So I think there's opportunities, and I hope that people that are doing research are more intentional in looking for those in the beginning stages of creating both the tools, the mechanisms, and what they're going to be researching. I'm excited when there's more research. Again, I, I hope that any research that happens is also centered with trans voices, which is critical. We know that research among trans people is limited, so the more research that is available, the more that funding and resources can be allocated to our community. Jessica? I'm not so sure that it's still a research priority because basically I think we have proven the case. The uh, HIV treatment guidelines uh, published by HHS have even included gender-affirming hormonal therapy in the guidelines in providing HIV primary care to transgender women living with HIV. I think we've made our case. I'm thrilled that uh, NIAID is continuing to fund prevention research for transgender women specifically because historically they've always been included under the MSM umbrella in these kinds of research studies. And the big difference there, of course, is that gay men don't need gender-affirming hormonal therapy, which is the primary reason. It's kind of a magnet to get trans women into uh, a clinical setting, which they would otherwise avoid because providers are hostile or insensitive to them. And so if you give them something that they want, like gender-affirming hormonal therapy, then their likelihood is they're gonna show up for their appointments and also be more adherent to their ART. There's a theory that we posited back as a result of writing up one, I think the DC needs assessment survey, the general risk theory in trans populations, that if you get a body you like, you're gonna take more steps to uh, protect that body which means practicing safer sex, using harm reduction. And, and if you are positive, then you get into treatment so that you can keep your viral load low. Do you have any final comments for our audience? I want to tell people that I'm an example that if trans people are given an opportunity, they will take that opportunity and excel. I hope that people that are in positions of power across the nation, across the world, will give people that are entry-level positions opportunity to grow within your organizations, to invest in them, to provide resources, educations, and tools, so that way we can grow and have decision-making power within these organizations. That would be my ask. Jessica? In terms of the future research priorities, there's a need for longitudinal life course studies, like what Michael Goodman is doing at Emory, working with the Kaiser Permanente, 
the system in their EMR. It's a tremendous amount of data there. I've always advocated for clinical research trials, but hormonal therapy on label and recognized by the FDA so that the pharma companies can finally admit their sales figures for cross-sex hormonal therapy. We also don't know much about the healthcare needs and concerns of non-binary people who may indeed become a larger population than transgender people sometime this decade. They're wholly unrecognized in public health surveillance. And when they want to access trans health care, too often they have to adopt a trans identity, put in a cookie cutter approach to trans health, and also put up with the constant misgendering by healthcare providers. In healthcare, should affirm people as they are, not try to force another identity on them. But just to sum up, in with the many fine researchers and activists we now have in the field, many of whom are trans and non-binary identified, and including those of color as well, I'm tremendously encouraged and hopeful for the future of trans health. My personal vision has always been and remains a future without fear for all of us. Thank you, Maria, and thank you, Jessica, for your time and for sharing your perspective on this topic with us. We hope to have you again in another episode of The Ages for Human. And to our audience, please stay tuned for episode 5 to continue the conversation on the research that is currently being done about transgender people's health. Do not forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your acquaintances, colleagues, friends, and family. And with me, it will be until next time in a new episode of The Ages for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV.